0: And welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and I'm thrilled to welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. On view now are the exhibitions Beauty's Legacy, Gilded Age Portraits in America, the Armory Show at 100, Modern Art and Revolution, and Clarice Smith, Recollections of a Life in Art, which will close this Sunday, February 9th, if you haven't. Seeing these exhibitions, I encourage you to. They're beautiful. And we hope to see you back. I always ask, and I put my glasses on for this one, how many members are with us tonight? OK. I, maybe I don't need to say anything anymore. But I do encourage, if there's one or two people here who have not yet joined, <laughs> just become part of the family. Free admission to the museum, great discounts on our public programs, and you'll know that your support helps with all our other programs that we organize here at the Historical Society. So now is the time, if you have a cell phone or an electronic device, to turn it off, and we ask that there's no flashing or no photography or recording as well. So tonight's program, "Gettysburg: the Aftermath," is part of the Bernard and Irene: "Hey, I left something out here. Wait a minute. What? No, I didn't. It's, it's following. A little mixed up, OK? It's the weather. That's what it's doing. Tonight's program, "Gettysburg: the Aftermath," is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker series, which is the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to the society. Additionally, I want to recognize and thank New York Historical Society trustees with us tonight, Lon Jacobs, Carl Mangus, and Michael Weisberg, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight as well for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. The program tonight will last an hour and include a question and answer session, and audience members will be invited to approach the two standing mics in either aisle. And we ask that you do this so that the speakers on stage can hear you, all the members of the audience can hear you, and the greater world out there, when we post it as a podcast, will hear you as well. Following the program, please join us for the book signing with our authors tonight, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. Unfortunately, John F. Marzalak could not make it tonight. We think he's wonderful. We'll miss him. But we have two wonderful people who will give us a great night um, regardless. He's ill, and we're sorry. We hope he gets better right away so he can come back and do some more with us. So tonight we welcome James McPherson, back to the New York Historical Society. Dr. McPherson is the George Henry Davis, 1886 professor of American history, emeritus at Princeton University, and one of the country's preeminent Civil War scholars. He is the best-selling author of numerous books on the Civil War, including Battle Cry of Freedom, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1989, he is a two-time winner of the Lincoln Prize for his books, Tried by War, Abraham Lincoln as Commander-in-Chief, and For Cause and Comrades, Why Men Fought in the Civil War. His most recent book is War on the Waters, the Union and Confederate Navies, 1861-1865. Our moderator this evening is Harold Holzer. Welcome back, Harold, who has been working with us to organize this fabulous Civil War series. So we thank you, Harold, for that. He's the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He's the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era, and in 2008 was awarded the National Humanities Medal. He served as a content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film, Lincoln. His latest book, The Civil War and 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of 50 objects from the New York Historical Society's collection. And if you look in your brochures, there will be a program, part two, with Eric Foner on that, with Harold Holzer. So now, please join me in welcoming our wonderful guests. Thank you.
1: Oh, thanks for coming. We always meet on the worst weather days, the worst weeks, and you're all always here filling the auditorium, which is great. We're sorry John couldn't join us. Um, I guess the news is that somebody has to turn that one cell phone off. Good thing we're not on C-SPAN. Even they couldn't make it because of the weather. Um, if John was well, he couldn't have made it because there were no flights from Mississippi, so it's one of those winter accidents. Well, I think it's fair to say, I think you'll agree with me, that no other battle in the history of the Civil War has ever inspired as much scholarship and so much second-guessing as the Battle of Gettysburg, 150 and a half years ago, July 1st, 2nd and 3rd, 1863, where everybody was hot and perspiring. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And when I say second-guessing, it was not just from journalists writing the first draft of history as the battle occurred or soon thereafter, or the memoirists who remember the action for their own autobiographies and reminiscences. Even the commander-in-chief himself was a second-guesser. Less than two weeks after the battle, Abraham Lincoln drafted a letter to his commanding general, George Gordon Meade. Those of you who may have been at our earlier Gettysburg programs will remember this. Uh, To characterize it as second guessing would be charitable, I think. Here is some of what he said, I'll read you a little bit of it. You fought and beat the enemy. He retreated and you did not, as it seemed to me, pressingly pursue him. I do not believe you appreciate the magnitude of the misfortune involved in Lee's escape. He was within your easy grasp, and to have closed upon him would in connection with our other late successes, meaning the Grant's capture of Vicksburg, have ended the war. As it is, the war will be prolonged indefinitely. I am distressed immeasurably because of it. Lincoln never sent the letter. He thought better of destroying what little ego General Meade had, but he meant every word, so... Let's go back and explore the final hours of the battle and the first hours and days of the armchair analysis, and we'll do our own armchair analysis. Um, When we leave tonight, maybe we can agree on an answer to one crucial historical question, and that's, was the Battle of Gettysburg the event that changed the course of the war? Was it an enormous lost opportunity, or both, or something in between? So Jim, let's, let's start after that long preamble by setting the scene probably with the third day because we need to give some context to, the, to the, what followed, to the aftermath. So it's the third day at Gettysburg and Robert Lee has decided that he will be the aggressor on the third day. He might have regrouped, he might have gone to Washington or toward Washington or simply waited to see what General Meade would do Instead, he ordered the most famous charge in the history of the Civil War, I guess, maybe in military history. Tell us why you think he made that decision. Well, Lee's plan
2: for the third day, and by the way, he'd been the the aggressor for the first two days as well, so there was nothing new about the um, offensive-mindedness of Lee on the third day. He actually had a three-part plan for the third day. Um, One part of it was to renew the attack on Culp's Hill which had fizzled out the night before without success. Another part of it was uh, to send Jeb Stuart's recently arrived cavalry out east of Gettysburg to come in on the rear of the Union forces there at the same time that Lee hoped the third and major part of his plan for uh, July 3rd, the famous Pickett's Charge, an assault by 12 or 13,000 men on the Union Center would break through. So it was a three-part plan, uh, and Lee based this plan on an assumption that turned out, I think, to be wrong, uh, an assumption that uh, the Union Army, the Army of the Potomac, was ready to crack, uh, that they had been defeated on each of the previous two days, no question about having been defeated on July 1st, I think Lee was over-optimistic in his interpretation of the limited successes of the the Confederates on July 2nd, Uh, and he he thought that uh, one more push, and those people, as he always called the enemy, uh, would crack. Uh, But all three parts of his plan for day three turned out to be uh, unsuccessful. Uh, the attempt to, ke- to take Culp's Hill, uh, which got started prematurely early in the morning of July 3rd, was beaten back with heavy Confederate losses. Uh, Stewart's attempt to uh, move in on the rear of the Union Army uh, from a point about two miles east of Gettysburg uh, was defeated by Union cavalry. In fact, uh, in a spectacular cavalry charge by led by none other than George Armstrong Custer, who had just been promoted to Brigadier General a few days before the battle. And then, of course, everybody realizes what happened with Pickett's charge. It was bloodily repulsed, uh, 50% <coughs> casualties, maybe more, for the 12 or 13,000 men who made that charge. Uh, and so what had started out on July 1st as a potential Confederate victory wound up on July 3rd being, if not a spectacular or overwhelming Union victory, at least a Confederate defeat, which uh, persuaded Lee uh, that uh, he had better cut his losses and uh, begin a retreat the next day, uh, hoping to get back to Virginia without uh, further loss.
1: So they called the moment when the remnants of that shattered army reached the crest, their goal, those, that copse of trees at Gettysburg, the Confederate high water mark. I'm always interested in why that is the high water mark when the war goes on for another period as long as the previous period and claims as many casualties as the previous period. Do you, I mean, do you regard it as the high water mark?
2: Well, in, in, in one way of looking at it, you could see it as the high water mark. Uh, if, if you use the metaphor of a tide, uh, the Confederate tide is rising uh, in the spring of 1863, at least that's the way it appeared to be in the Eastern Theater, following some major victories at Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville. Uh, it crests there at Cemetery Ridge and then begins ebbing, begins receding but a receding tide can also cause an awful lot of damage and of course the war does go on for another 21 months and the casualties in 1864 are higher than they were any previous year and so clearly uh, if Gettysburg is the high tide or the high watermark of the Confederacy, uh, even so that receding tide takes another 21 months and of course kills a, a lot of people and destroys a lot of property So in a way, you could see it as a high-water mark. That's a legitimate metaphor, I think, Uh, especially uh, when, as Lincoln, um, put it in his unsent letter to uh, Meade, uh, in combination with our other successes, uh, because, of course, on July 4th, Vicksburg surrenders to Grant. On July 8th or 9th, uh, Port Hudson surrenders to, Nathaniel Banks, and uh, uh, another op- major operation that gets lost uh, in this, uh, this concentration, this focus on Gettysburg and Vicksburg was the advance of the Army of the Cumberland uh, under William S. Rosecrans uh, in mid-Tennessee, which eventually leads to the capture of Chattanooga, which becomes the takeoff point for Sherman's campaign the next year.
1: What, do, do we have a good idea, considering the fact that the total casualties of the war are now sort of being reappraised, what, what were the casualties in, in killed, wounded, and missing at the engagement, the three-day engagement at Gettysburg?
2: Well, the total number of casualties at Gettysburg itself in those three days of July were about 50,000. Uh, 24 to 26,000 Uh, Confederate casualties, we don't know the exact number, and about 23,000 Union casualties. Another four or 5,000 Confederate casualties during the following 10 days on the retreat, which we'll be talking about in a moment. Um, Gettysburg was by far the largest single battle of the war in terms of casualties, uh, with 50,000. Of those uh, 50,000, about 11,000 were either killed were mortally wounded, uh, which is greater than any other battle in the war, and another 30,000 or so uh, um, survived their wounds, and another 10,000 or so um, were captured unwounded, about 5,000 on each side.
1: I mean, the numbers are absolutely... They're
2: extraordinary. If if you think about um, uh, the casualties on D-Day, which, of course, the 70th anniversary will be coming up in a few months, Uh, the American casualties on D-Day were only 6,000. And even if you add the German and British and Canadian, uh, uh, they're they're far less than even the single Battle of Antietam, which was one day, which had 23,000 casualties. So uh, Civil War casualties are enormous, especially compared to uh, modern wars.
1: I just want to take a minute to show you a few slides because it relates to the story of the dead and wounded, if we could have the first. Um, this is a, a person that we included in uh, the Civil War in 50 Objects. His name is John Paul Semmes, not tremendously well-known. His cousin was far better known, Raphael Semmes, who was an admiral in the Confederate... Uh, was he an admiral? Yeah, he was an admiral. He be, yeah, Navy.
2: he was promoted to admiral.
1: This is the guy who should have been the admiral. His name is John Paul
2: Yeah, that's right.
1: John Paul Semmes. But he was a Confederate officer and um, was wounded in the leg at Gettysburg. And this is why I think even these casualty numbers are a little fuzzy. Uh, Deeply religious person, carried on an active correspondence with his wife um, in June. Um, Sure, they they were both sure that God would watch over him uh, because of their piety. Uh, If we could have the next slide. We see a copy of a letter he writes on July 4th, severely wounded at Gettysburg, uh, my main danger is over, wounded in the leg, um, a tourniquet saved me, um, and he's in the retreat. He is carried off to uh, to Western Virginia, as he calls it, West Virginia today, and he dies. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't die until about July 17th
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, of infection and gangrene and whatever. So. It's the, the aftermath included an aftermath of casualties of people scattered around the, the nearby towns.
2: Absolutely. Uh, well, the whole of Gettysburg and the surrounding countryside became hospitals. Uh, the Confederates actually had to leave behind uh, to, to be captured uh, about six or 7,000 wounded who were too badly wounded uh, to be moved. And then many others who actually did evacuate uh, as part of the wounded that the Confederates took with him, died along the way. Uh, so, and, and uh, it, it Sam's was
1: right that it's torture that the roads. Oh, are
2: absolutely. That's that's part of the story of the retreat from Gettysburg is the torture suffered by the wounded because there were not anywhere near enough of ambulances to carry all these wounded, and so the Confederates commandeered. Uh, carriages, farm wagons, um, and, and carried the wounded away in those. Uh, it was raining almost every day, and these dirt roads became rutted, and you know, the jouncing of these uh, farm wagons carrying badly wounded men, uh, the torture was absolutely uh, indescribable.
1: Let's talk about the, the challenge of moving as much equipment as many men as Lee endeavored to take back across the Potomac. It's really quite an extraordinary enterprise, isn't it? It's yeah. not just the wounded, of course. Well, no, no, not at all.
2: Uh, well, Lee still had uh, some, um, he, uh, he suffered about uh, uh, the, the, the 7,000 wounded plus, uh, oh, 4,000 or so who were already dead were left behind at Gettysburg. Uh, But Lee uh, was still carrying back between 60 and 65,000 men, including about 10,000 wounded that went with him. Uh, They took one road back through Cashtown near Chambersburg and then across country uh, to um, uh, the Potomac River. Uh, and this is when they suffered all kinds of the torture that we were talking
1: about. But did they take artillery and animals as well? Well, uh, on that route,
2: there was some artillery plus some cavalry because they were there to guard what was called the wagon train of misery. Uh, So it was a 17-mile-long wagon train with all these commandeered farm wagons, ambulances, carriages, anything. Uh, And it was guarded by a brigade of cavalry, Fitzhugh Lee's brigade of cavalry, uh, and it also had about 20 pieces of artillery. So they went by that route. Uh, The rest of the Confederate Army uh, went by a different route. Uh, And they all came together at the Potomac River uh, and uh, were, were, were trapped because uh, on the morning after the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, the morning of July 4th, it began to rain. It rained uh, a torrential downpour on July 4th and 5th. Uh, It continued to rain off and on almost every day after that time, which of course made the retreat a a real nightmare on some of these back roads that they had to go. Uh, But it also caused the Potomac River to rise uh, above uh, the, f- the level where it could be forded. And Union cavalry had actually uh, captured and destroyed the one pontoon bridge the Confederates had at Falling Waters about three miles downriver from Williamsport, Maryland, where the where the army was headed to cross the Potomac River. So Lee was actually trapped uh, in Maryland. With his back to the river. With his back to a, a flood <laughs> river. Uh, for 10 days uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg, which is uh, a large part of the story uh, of Gettysburg and of the aftermath of Gettysburg.
1: Which explains Lincoln's yes, impatience. absolutely. So could Meade have gotten 60,000 of his own men to move?
2: Well... Uh, There there are two schools of thought, I guess, on Meade. There's Lincoln's school of thought that he missed an enormous opportunity uh, and was too timid, uh, too slow, too tentative uh, in his retreat. Uh, And there's the other school of thought which said that Meade was properly circumspect. Uh, And even if he wasn't, even if you don't think that, you have to sympathize with the man because here is somebody who had been appointed as commander of the Army of the Potomac. Uh, He was surprised in the middle of the night uh, on June 28th, uh, and then uh, three days later finds himself in uh, uh, the fight of his life. he
1: wasn't sure he wanted the command. He
2: didn't. Well, that's right. He wasn't sure he wanted this command. Uh, During that battle and for the days after that battle, he was under enormous pressure Uh, He was getting very little sleep, Uh, he was new to command, he felt the weight of responsibility on his shoulders, even though he realized he had won an important victory in a defensive battle at Gettysburg. Uh, He was very much concerned that he not throw away this victory by rash um, actions. By making the same mistake that Lee made, as he put it himself, by running up against a strong defensive position. Um, and so. A little when, bit of
1: resting on his laurels, or you think? Not? Well,
2: uh,
1: I don't think it
2: was so much resting on his laurels as it was a, a concern that he not make any mistakes, that he not uh, make the same mistakes, as I just said, that Lee had made uh, at Gettysburg. Um, The the Army of the Potomac, um, the culture of the, if if we can call it that, the culture of the Army of the Potomac had been created by its creator, and that was George B. McClellan, who, as everybody I think in this room realizes, was very cautious, very conservative, was always doubling or even tripling his estimate of the enemy numbers that he faced, and I think that McClellan had ingrained Uh, in the Army itself, and especially in its command structure, and that included George Gordon Meade, who had come up from a Brigadier General commanding a brigade all the way to the top command of the Army over the first two years of the war. A a culture, it ingrained a culture of uh, defensive-mindedness, of caution, of conservatism, Uh, and I think that uh, that was really um, Meade's mindset. Also, uh, I've talked to army officers who have experience in combat command, and it's very difficult to change over your psychology from fighting a desperate defensive battle, which Meade did at Gettysburg, to, to go over quickly, psychologically, as well as logistically, to the offense. And I think Meade uh, just was not, uh, was not able to do that. Unlike, let's say, Sheridan a year and a half, a little more than a year later at Cedar Creek, going over from defense to offense and winning a smashing victory. Meade just did not have that kind of a mindset.
1: Was there a council of war at which pursuit was discussed? And did people vote? Did they register opinions that we know of?
2: Well, there was a council of war. It wasn't where the pursuit was discussed, but it was a question of whether the army should attack on July 12th at Williamsport. Uh, When the battle was, was over on July 3rd, uh, and it became clear on July 4th that that, um, Lee was not going to renew the attack. In fact, uh, Union scouts uh, found out that they were preparing to retreat and had begun to retreat. Uh, Meade was not sure whether Lee was actually retreating or whether he was moving to another position in order to continue the campaign. And it took a day or two for him to figure that out. Not, you know, that's something that we can sympathize with him for, I think. Then he decided that uh, he needed to move his supply base uh, from Westminster, uh, which did not have very large railroad capacity and was a long way from from Gettysburg or from the pursuit uh, to Frederick, Maryland. And so it took a while for him to get the new supply base at Frederick So he doesn't really begin the pursuit until July 7th or July 8th. And finally, they come up against the Confederate line at Williamsport, uh, where Lee is desperately rebuilding the um, pontoon bridge that's been destroyed and hoping that the river will go down so that they can ford at the ford at Williamsport itself. and Meade is under a lot of pressure from Washington, from Lincoln himself, and from General Halleck to attack, uh, to to uh, make sure that the Army of Northern Virginia does not get back to its namesake state of Virginia without further damage. Uh, and Meade calls a council of war on the evening of uh, July
1: 12th. Uh, it's... T- I'm going to prod you a little about Meade. It's still nine days after the battle.
2: Yeah, it's still nine days after the battle. Uh, But it wasn't until the 11th that the Union, that the Army of the Potomac had basically caught up with Lee and gotten into position uh, a mile across the open fields uh, from the Confederate lines at Williamsport. Uh, Meade sends uh, a dispatch to Washington uh, on the morning of, uh, I'll make sure I've got my dates right here, Um, on July 11th, saying I intend to attack them uh, in the morning. Lee is, um, Lincoln is very skeptical when he receives this dispatch uh, because he's grown skeptical about the Army of the Potomac over the past two years when it repeatedly has disappointed him. And he tells John Hay, who, enter, who writes this in his diary, that they'll be ready to attack when there's no enemy to attack. <laughs> <laughs> well, sure enough, the next day, July 12th, a dispatch comes from Meade to Washington, saying he hasn't attacked. And the reason he hasn't attacked is that he did call for a consul of war of his uh, corps commanders, uh, and a couple of division commanders on the evening of July 11th, and they vote uh, by, I think the vote was seven to two, but I'm not absolutely sure. It may have been something like that, against attacking or waiting one more day and carrying out a greater reconnaissance, uh, more reconnaissance to try to determine the, the nature of the Confederate defenses. Uh, and Lincoln is uh, disappointed, but not, not surprised <laughs> by this. Uh, that night, uh, Meade, uh, well, Meade gets a dispatch back from Halleck, the general-in-chief, saying, um, you know, you shouldn't have called a Council of War. It's proverbial that councils of war never fight. You are the commander of this army. Make your decision and make your subordinates obey your orders. Well, that put a little backbone in Meade. Uh, and, and this is, uh, actually, I think I got my dates wrong. This is now... Uh, July 13th, and on the night of July 13th, he makes a decision he's going to attack the next morning. Well, when they go forward the next morning...
1: The river's consp- lower, the bridge... Is- the,
2: the, well, they have rebuilt the pontoon bridge, uh, and the river has gone down just enough so that, they can, that Ewell's Corps can ford at Williamsport itself. The other two corps cross on the pont- pontoon bridge at a place called Falling Waters downriver. Uh, and as Lincoln had predicted, when they go forward, they find no enemy to fight. Lee has gotten over the river that
1: night. But doesn't uh, Meade also say, much to Lincoln's irritation, we have driven the enemy from our soil? Well, Indicating yes. Indicating... Uh, irritating Lincoln no end, because Lincoln reminds everyone, in, a, in an explosion of temper, rare explosion of temper, doesn't he understand it's all our soil, yeah. it's not his object?
2: Yeah. Once it became clear that Lee was retreating, Meade issues a congratulatory order to his army uh, saying, you know, you've done a great job, but our task isn't finished. We must make sure that the invader is driven out uh, uh, out of our soil, away from our soil. And when Lincoln reads that dispatch, uh, he said, my God, is that all? Mm-hmm. Don't these generals understand? The whole country is our soil. That's the point of the war. Um, and, and then he tells, uh, uh, I think, Wells in this case, that this is a dreadful mind, uh, a reminder of McClellan, who had said pretty much the same thing when Lee had gotten away after
1: Antietam. And Lincoln says that if I would have gone there, I could have whipped them myself. That's right which is doubtful, but it's an interesting show of bravado that was rare for him. I've always thought also that Meade was usually not a darling of the press. I'm gonna just, this is going to be my last criticism of General Meade. Some of you may remember that um, in one of our earlier programs, Mrs. Nelson Rockefeller was here, and she identified herself. I had no idea. I mean, I grew up with Happy Rockefeller as the First Lady of New York, but she's the great-great-great-granddaughter of General Meade. I had no idea. General Meade's name was, wife's name was Margarita, like Mrs. Rockefeller. They've always had a Margarita in the family. So I was very inhibited that night. <laughs> very well behaved. Mrs. Ro- no, I don't think she's here. <laughs> Meade is also reading the press, and in this case, I mean, if you read some Confederate newspapers, they're saying, these, these stories of a, of a rout are invented. But if you read the northern newspapers, much of it beautifully written, it's about sacrifice, but it's also about huge triumph. It, the yeah. press knows says immediately this is the greatest moment of the war. And I sometimes, I just, just think there's a little bit of laurel resting. Well, maybe you're right about in the, resting in that. In yeah.
2: Could be. Well, could be.
1: Could, did Lee ever think of, I mean, he was a tough, Fellow. Did he ever think of doing a little fish hook and fighting back, or b- because the river was to his back, he would never have done that?
2: I don't think he could have done that. He actually did but, think about doing that after Antietam, uh, but I think he realized uh, by the evening of July 3rd and 4th, overnight, uh, that his army was not going to be capable of doing anything like that, that it, it finally hit home to Lee uh, after the repulse of Pickett's assault, I think. Uh, that he had been pretty badly uh, beaten, and that uh, maybe he would better cut his losses and uh, and get out while he could, which is an unusual state of mind for Lee, uh, mm-hmm. and, and pretty rare uh, in Lee's case. But I think he did feel that way. There's enough testimony uh, by other Confederate officers who talked to him that night and the next day that uh, he was in a very chastened mood uh, on the night of July 3rd and 4th
1: you know um, most people now know about the Hampton Roads Peace Conference because of the movie, movie yeah. Lincoln and they know that the Confederate Vice President Alexander Hamilton Stevens led a delegation ultimately that got to see Lincoln but Stevens also goes I think to Hampton Roads right after the Battle of Gettysburg
2: he, he's, he arrives there and Lincoln turns him back that's he, right
1: So why do you and and tell us about that? But tell us why you think Lincoln does not want to discuss peace after Gettysburg.
2: Well, uh, Stevens uh, had been sent by Jefferson Davis to seek a a meeting under flag of truce with Abraham Lincoln, ostensibly to uh, discuss the prisoner of war exchange program, which was uh, breaking down. Uh, but Stevens also had verbal instructions from Jefferson Davis this became known later uh, to approach Lincoln about the possibility of peace negotiations. And the idea here was that as Lee successfully carried out an invasion of North and maybe even marched toward Washington to threaten Washington, uh, Stevens would carry an olive branch. Uh, Lee would carry the sword and Stevens would carry the olive branch and that maybe Lincoln would be forced by the threat of the Confederate invasion to, uh, to give in um, to the possibility of negotiating a peace that would recognize Confederate independence. And word arrives, uh, so Stevens, um, under flag of truce, takes a boat down the James River to Hampton Roads Uh, to the Union lines there at Fort Monroe, uh, and sends word to Washington uh, that he is there and would like to come to Washington to meet with his old friend from their days in Congress together back in the 1840s, Abraham Lincoln. I think Lincoln had a pretty good idea of why Stevens was coming, Uh, and on July 4th, when news reaches Washington uh, of the outcome of the Battle of Gettysburg, uh, Lincoln sends back a rather brusque message uh, to Hampton Roads, to the to the commander of the Union naval fleet there, uh, that Stevens, by no circumstance, can be allowed to come to Washington. you are not going to send him a pass. So that was the end of that.
1: So while all this is happening, while these councils of war are occurring and being contemplated and Lee is making his escape. It's not the only thing happening in the the various theaters of the war, as you pointed out. Around the same time, a couple of other cinematic events, as it turns out, because both of them inspired movies, is one thing that occurs is the assault on Battery Wagner
2: in Charleston. That happens uh, on July 18th, so it's a couple of weeks later, uh, and it's part of an effort to capture Charleston uh, which ultimately fails, but of course uh, it uh, achieves fame and, uh, and and reputation for the 54th Massachusetts, uh, the first black regiment uh, organized in the North, and uh, by a large measure the most famous of the black regiments suffers 50% casualties in that. Uh, actually, what goes on simultaneously with the assault on Fort Wagner is the draft.
1: The draft riots. I was going to get here to in New York next. City. Yeah. Um, well, let's get into that a little bit, too, because sure. it's not New York's finest finest moment, as I've said repeatedly from this stage, but it is almost concurrent, and it takes some troops from Gettysburg to help quell this three- or four-day disturbance.
2: Actually, they were not troops that had fought at right. Gettysburg. They were, up, uh, they were... Dispatched up, though. They were uh, uh, New York State militia <laughs> regiments that had been sent out to Pennsylvania to reinforce the Army of the Potomac and then were called back to deal with the riots in, here in New York City. My the, the other things that were going on, of course, at the same time as Gettysburg, we mentioned earlier, which is the surrender of Vicksburg and then Port Hudson, and then the advance of Rosecrans in central Tennessee. So the, from, from having been on the uh, 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 sort of reeling back on the defense. Uh, in the spring of 1863, now all three major Union armies are on, uh, or uh, in, in, in the case of the Army of the Lincoln thinks they should be um, bouncing back on the offense. No, no. Uh, that is happening in Mississippi and in Tennessee, and that's why Lincoln said, "You know, I'm distressed immeasurably because of your." Uh, Lee's escape, because in combination with her other recent successes, it would have entered the, ended the war. That's debatable, of course, but nevertheless, one can understand Lincoln's profound, I think, disappointment.
1: I'm, I have more questions to ask Professor McPherson, but while I'm posing them, why don't those of you who have questions begin to assemble at the various microphones? Um, you know, we've spoken about Lee's army leaving, and we've spoken about Meade's army finding a new position, and the one piece that's left in the aftermath story is the mess that the people in Gettysburg have to deal with. Uh, Spend a few minutes describing what they find and what they decide ultimately to do. Well,
2: there are an enormous number of um, wounded men and dead men left behind at Gettysburg uh, probably altogether about um, 35,000 dead and wounded men uh, at Gettysburg. Every uh, farm and barn and uh, public building and many private homes in Gettysburg and uh, all around in the countryside become uh, emergency hospitals. Uh, volunteers, uh, as well as professional um, nurses and doctors, <laughs> Uh, the sanitary commission and, and uh, all the rest of them flocked to Gettysburg. Uh, it, it, it's a town of only 2,400 people, and now you've got the 35,000 dead wounded men in the area. You can imagine.
1: And animals, become, of course. Dead uh, yeah, horses. Three, three, three or
2: 4,000 dead horses and mules as well. Hot summer. Uh, in, the, in these July days, uh, I think you don't need a whole lot of imagination to, oh. to figure out what was going on there. Uh, they, the the burial details from the Army of the Potomac, get the soldiers on both sides underground as quickly as they can. Uh, sooner, pretty soon, the Army of the Potomac's medical corps under Jonathan Letterman brings order out of that chaos and establishes field hospitals, uh, and eventually a, a more general hospital, Letterman Hospital, uh, Gettysburg, where the wounded. Um, uh, are Some of the wounded remained for, for many weeks, even months after the battle. Uh, Gettysburg probably takes, I don't know how long, but very many months, even years, to get back to some kind of semblance of normality. And of course, the governor of Pennsylvania uh, and a local, uh, Andrew Curtin and a local lawyer, uh, David Wills, get together and decide that they want to reinter the union war dead from that battle with dignity and honor in what becomes in effect the first national cemetery where lincoln of course makes his famous address four months after the four and a half months after the battle in november of 1863 by which time by the way not all the horses had been burned right. and not all of the uh, men had been interred and there was still a Uh, people who went to Gettysburg even as late as November talk about the lingering smell of death there, and Mm -hmm. one can readily imagine that.
1: And and one story that I've always found haunting, in addition to the haunting scenes that you've described, is that some free African Americans who had established farms in Gettysburg but had heard that Lee's army was re-enslaving free African Americans along their march fled and never returned. That's right. Never reclaimed their land, never reclaimed their property.
2: Well, uh, of the 2,400 um, residents of the village of Gettysburg uh, in 1863, 192 of them were black, and uh, half a dozen or so farm families in the area surrounding Gettysburg were black. They all took off because they knew what the Confederates had done in the two weeks they'd been in Pennsylvania since. June 15th, especially over in the Chambersburg area, they'd captured hundreds uh, of uh, blacks living in that part of Pennsylvania, claiming that they were all fugitive slaves that had run away from Virginia, and sent them back, and many of them had actually been born and raised there in in Pennsylvania, and sent them back. So the black community in Gettysburg had plenty of time and plenty of advance warning, and they all took off north of the Susquehanna River, and as you say, some of them never never came back again.
1: Well, we have lots of questions. Let's start here. Hi,
2: Ray Tillman. At the time of Gettysburg, did General Lee fully appreciate that he could not, the Confederacy could not win militarily, and therefore he was engaging in a dramatic move to affect northern public opinion? But to what, A, did he fully appreciate it at that time, and B, did that affect his militarily questionable decision to uh, engage in Pickett's charge? Well, I think uh, the key to to Lee's state of mind here is uh, overconfidence. Uh, he had won battles against this same army several times before, most recently just two months earlier at Chancellorsville, uh, where he faced greater numerical odds than he did at Gettysburg. Uh, and he, th- in, in a way, he thought that Uh, invading the North. He had two purposes in invading the North, I think. One was to secure supplies for his army from the rich Pennsylvania countryside, and they were actually quite successful in doing that. And the second was to uh, win what he hoped would be a knockout victory, uh, the third consecutive victory after Fredericksburg and Chancellorsville uh, against the Army of the Potomac. And he was confident clearly he was overconfident that he could do so. And when he had done so, he thought that that would so demoralize the army and the northern people that that would force the Lincoln administration to uh, negotiate some kind of a peace. Uh, So I think that's basically what Lee's purpose was and that's what his mindset was. And that's why he continued to order uh, attack after attack, climaxing with Pickett's charge on the third day when he was at Gettysburg. Uh, he thought that you know the enemy was ready to crack, and uh, they would do so on, on July 3rd. Yes. I'm Jim Pusinich, a docent here. Uh, I know historians hate hypothetical, but in your opinions, if Meade had vigorously pursued Lee, how quickly, how much could he destroy Lee's army, and how quicker would the war have ended? Well, I'm of the... I'm of the school that said uh, I'm on Lincoln's side here. I think, I think Meade should have attacked on either July 11th or 12th, uh, or even the 13th, before Lee had retreated. Uh, the Confederate defensive line was held by probably not many more than 40,000 men, maybe as 42,000 men. Uh, it was 9 miles long stretching from hagerstown on the left flank to uh, falling waters on the potomac river on the right flank so it was a thin gray line uh, it was well fortified with artillery uh, so it would have been a it would have been a high casualty attack if meade had attacked and maybe he wouldn't have destroyed lee's army but he certainly would have further damaged it now of course it would have cost the 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 Army of the Potomac, a lot of casualties too. But Lincoln's point was, and he may have been right, he may have been wrong, we'll never know, uh, that if the war goes on, even more men are going to die. And of course, that's happened in the 21 months after Gettysburg. There's no way of knowing whether if Meade had attacked, let's say, on July 12th or 13th, uh, and it, uh, the Army of Northern Virginia suffers another eight or 9,000 casualties. Um, it's still trapped with its back to the river. Maybe the Army of the Potomac suffers another twelve or 15,000 casualties. Who knows? Um, but how many casualties took place in the next 21 months? 350,000. Uh, yeah, well, exactly. So uh, whether or not that would have brought an end to the war, it would have further... Uh, damaged the Army of Northern Virginia. There's no question about it. And that army could not stand further damage as well as the larger Army of the Potomac backed by a much larger population in the north.
1: Okay, we'll go to this side now. Uh,
0: Gerald Walpin, as um, I, I, you answered one part of my question by uh, your statement now of your opinion is that Medea should have attacked. But my question is, if Lincoln or Halleck, both of whom I understand were supervisors and over uh, Meade, had really insisted upon the attack and believed that they would take the risk on their back to do the attack, why didn't they order him to do so?
2: Well, uh, Halleck actually comes close to ordering uh, Meade to attack in this telegram saying, you know, don't call councils of war. It's proverbial, the councils of war never fight. Make your own decision and make your subordinates obey you. And that's when uh, I think Meade says, uh, says to himself, you know, I really do need to make the attack, but that's on the morning of the 14th. Uh, and and uh, Lee is gone. So up until that time, uh, Halleck and, and Lincoln have been pressing Meade to attack, but they didn't give him a peremptory order. Of course, Lincoln uh, was a somewhat disillusioned with giving peremptory orders to the Army of the Potomac. He had done that with McClellan, and McClellan never did it. Famous uh,
1: order of Washington's yeah. birthday wasn't it? Yeah, 18- the 62. Was- 18- you, you will launch a simultaneous attack, and nobody did any. Yeah, and
2: and and basically, uh, with Hooker, he had made the same kinds of orders before Chancellorsville. So, you know, the, the famous. Um, uh, Uh, military, Prussian military analyst, Karl von Clausewitz, who had fought against Napoleon and then wrote a famous book, Von Kriege, on war, uh, came up with the concept of friction, where you can give an order, but by the time somebody down the line tries to carry out that order or maybe resists carrying it, an enormous amount of friction takes place. So just giving an order doesn't make any, it doesn't ensure that it is carried out or obeyed. And Lincoln had learned that the
1: hard way. Let's try to get to our three remaining questioners here. Uh, Yes, ma'am.
0: Pastor, during the Civil War, were there two nations or one nation and rebellious states?
2: Well, Lincoln's interpretation, of course, was that there was one nation and the rebellious states. Jefferson Davis's interpretation was that there were two nations. Uh, you can really take your choice between that. They're both, uh, I think, I think they're both to some degree legal fictions, um, and of course uh, they carried, they 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 captured each other's soldiers as prisoners of war and treated them as prisoners of war, which is, of course, the, what you do in in war between nations. And Lincoln declares a blockade of the Confederate coast, which is a, a weapon of war between nations. But at the same time, Lincoln fights the war on the basis of the theory that this is a rebellion uh, by individuals and that the states are really still part of the United States.
1: And never uses the term confederate states.
2: That's right. He never actually uses the word confederate states or confederacy uh, in any official. I mean, privately, he probably did, but in any official documentation. The rebels. Um, But that's, that's the perennial debate about whether it was a war between two separate nations or a rebellion within one nation. And the fact that we call it a civil war, most of us at any rate, uh, suggests that that is the kind of general consensus that it was a war between two parts of the same country.
0: Sir. We're interested in the communication between Gettysburg and Lincoln. Um, it seems when you read lincoln's letter that he may have had google earth or people all over <laughs>
2: telling him what what is going on and where the armies are when you say how where lee was what kind, how uh, reliable was all the information that lincoln was receiving and how would he receive this information and, and knowing that it was accurate and reliable and making the decision to uh well the 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 um, the army and the war department in washington are in telegraphic constant telegraphic communication with each other. There are telegrams going back and forth. Uh, and this information comes from Meade or co- uh, from uh, his chief of staff uh, to Halleck, basically. And Halleck communicates with Lincoln uh, and then sends uh, inf- sends telegrams back to, to Meade. So while the information may not have been 100% accurate, it's it's constant. They're in constant contact with each other and And Lincoln, I think, is pretty well informed of what's going on. Lincoln has a pretty good sense of of geography. He has maps uh, in the White House and in the War Department. He knows where Williamsport is. He knows how far it is from Hagerstown, how far it is from Gettysburg, et cetera. So I think they had pretty accurate information.
1: A mutual friend of ours, Tom Wheeler, who is interestingly now the head of the Federal Communications Commission, wrote a book a few years ago called Mr. Lincoln's T-Mails, you reminded me when you said Google that, and and you know makes a strong case that this was the first telegraphic war, and that Lincoln was practically, not quite, but practically, learning about things in real time. Mm-hmm. It was close. Yeah, only only
2: uh, um, sometimes minutes and sometimes hours. Yeah, uh, did these telegrams would get back and forth from which was Washington unheard. to the front.
1: Sir, they've taken your microphone away, but I promise that we would guess you. So. Shout it out, I'm sure you. Quick question. Okay. Oh, he's all right. We wanted the podcast. Oh, okay. That's a good reason.
2: A couple of months ago, during the presentation here, there was a discussion about whether Meade really wanted to destroy um, Lee because of his family connection to the South, and that the military core of the federal government didn't really support Lincoln. Would you speak on that? Well, I think that uh, a lot of um, officers in the United States Army, and uh, even during the Civil War in the Army of the Potomac, uh, were conservative uh, or very much moderate on the social and political issues involved in this war. Uh, that was certainly true of McClellan. I think to some degree it was true of Meade. It was not true of Grant or of Sheridan. It was even partly true, I think, of Sherman. Yeah. Uh, who had lived in the South before the war, they didn't necessarily want to destroy the planter class, the infrastructure, maybe even not even slavery in the South. They wanted to put down the rebellion, but they didn't want necessarily to destroy the South. Uh, And I think that mindset does feed into the kind of... um, Caution and conservatism that I was talking about earlier, that McClellan had uh, ingrained in this army, and that I think the Meade to some degree shared. Uh, you know, they, they didn't sympathize with Thaddeus Stevens, uh, who wanted to destroy the planter class in the South. Uh, they wanted to destroy rebellion, but not necessarily the
1: South. Which is why it's one of the great ironies that Sherman, who had lived in the South, is the person. Creates the biggest swath of destruction and does the most uh, public destruction to the but planet. but
2: in terms of his attitude toward reconstruction and social yes. revolution in the South not he's to pretty mention conservative. surrender yeah he's practically right. ready
1: to give away the store but that's, that's right. we'll save that for another that's another day. issue another talk so I will end by saying that um, on July seventh which is a week before that final attack could have happened is, as Jim McPherson has told us. Um, Lincoln, still unsure about whether there would be a pursuit, uh, was greeted with this loud, boisterous serenade and celebration at the White House to celebrate the two federal victories at Gettysburg and at Vicksburg. And he appeared at his familiar window on the second floor of the White House, looked down at the crowd. Of course, they opened the window. And he said, "Um, I thank almighty God for our great victories. Uh, And then he hit upon what appears to have been an interesting, impromptu idea. He said, how long ago is it? 80-odd years? Since on the 4th of July, for the first time in the history of the world, a nation by its representatives assembled and declared as a self-evident truth that all men are created equal? That's a really good idea. (laughs) He didn't express it very well. Um, He says, gentlemen, this is a glorious theme. And it's really the occasion for a speech, but I'm not prepared to make one now." And yet, four months later, when he is prepared to make the speech, it's exactly the idea that he goes back to. And now, of course, as he often did in his oratorical and his writing career, massages an idea that he's sort of grappling with and trying to piece together into this beautiful magisterial opening four score and seven years ago our fathers brought forth on this continent, a new nation, et cetera, et cetera, you know it well. And Lincoln journeys to Gettysburg um, and consecrates this battle for all time. And as some of you may know from the last time we spoke, and I alerted you all, uh, on the 150th anniversary of that great speech, um, the person they turned to to give the dedicatory address and remember it was our own James McPherson. So thank you for coming tonight. Thank you.